Well, good morning, Be Free. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We're in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And in these passages again, Peter is focusing on the church as a family, just like last week. And on March 17th, 1989, I was born into a family. And when I was born, my mother and my father and my sister, they didn't stop and hold a vote to decide whether or not they were going to let me into the family. They didn't give me tests to see me if I could get in or, or training before I entered. I was in that family as soon as I was born. And that's how it works. Everybody ever born has been born into a family. Nobody comes from nobody. Everybody comes from somebody. And this is just as true with spiritual birth as it is with physical birth. Just like I was born into a family, just by nature of being born, we also, by being born again, are born into a spiritual family. As soon as we are born, we are born into the family of God. We are given new hearts, new relationships with brothers and sisters. We read last week in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we were purified for a sincere brotherly love. And we're told to love one another earnestly from pure heart. And we were commanded to live in a community that was free from a lot of the one another sins that we have against one another. Sins like malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. So Peter has already been talking about the family. Specifically, the relationship that the family shares with one another. That was last week. Last week, Peter focused more on what was going on inside the church. This week, however, in verses 4 through 10, Peter turns his attention to focus on what's happening outside the church. And so now let's stop for a minute. Let's quiet our hearts. And let's ask the Lord to remove distractions from us right now, to focus in on what we're doing. And then also let's ask him to humble us so that we can receive what he has for us from his word today. Take a minute to pray for that, and then I will pray for us as we move into 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Heavenly Father, teach us through this word this morning. Uh, show us what you have for us in this word this morning. I pray, Lord, that its truths by the power of your Holy Spirit would change us. I mean, we believe that these are your words. We trust that. And so, we, Lord, we come to it expecting to be changed by it, Lord. Keep us humble. Open up our eyes to see what's here. And tenderize our hearts, Lord, so that it can change us in the process. Father, work through these words this morning, we pray. We love you. We want to we wanna honor you with our lives and our church. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Let me read it for us. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourself, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This passage is a beautiful passage, but I'm sure you can tell right from the beginning, there is so much here. Even before we dive in, I want to tell you this passage is full of at least six different references to the Old Testament. It's full of different images, different illustrations. But at the end of the day, the message of this passage isn't all that complex. Rather, it's pretty simple and it's radically beautiful. But in order for us to understand what that message is, we have to have a little bit of an imagination here. Because Peter is using an illustration. And to understand that illustration, we have to know at least a little bit about construction in the first century. And I assume that you're like me, and you don't know all that much about construction in the first century. But this is actually all you need to know. Is that when builders were building a house in the first century, the most important thing for them to find was the cornerstone. And so they would go to a field where the stones cut from a quarry were laid, and they would go through that field looking for the perfect stone that they would put at the corner of the foundation. And that stone needed to be perfect with right angles. It needed to be smooth and straight. It needed to be in line with perfect 90 degree angles on every side. The reason being is that every other stone that they would use to build that house was going to be laid in relation to that cornerstone. So for instance, if that cornerstone was just a little bit off, the house would be a little bit off. It was radically important for construction at that time for the builders to find a perfectly square, even, straight cornerstone. And so that's something that we need to have in mind as we come to this passage. So let's now, with that in mind, go back to verses 4 and 5. I'll read it for you again. Peter says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now we do have to use our imagination here because each stone in this lot uh, represents a different person. And one of the stones represents Jesus himself. So we have to imagine a group of men, maybe a construction crew, going to a quarry and looking at all these stones laid out, all of these stones that represent different people in Jesus. And as these men walk through the rows of this, of this quarry, they stoop down and they look at different stones and they, they measure them and they, they check the angles. And what they're doing is they're looking for the cornerstone. They're looking for that main most important stone, the stone that's gonna determine whether or not the entire building is straight and square and in line. 
And so we're imagining that these construction work workers, as they go through the quarry, come to the stone that represents Jesus. And they bend down and they look at it. They measure it. They measure the angles and, and the length. They run their hands over its surfaces. But they reject it. They look at the Jesus stone and decide, you know what? <clears throat> this stone is not good. This is not a stone that we want to use as the cornerstone. And so they pass on. But now we have to imagine that after this group of men, this construction crew, leaves the quarry, somebody else comes. Somebody else comes to the quarry looking for stones for his house. Now this construction worker is God. <laughs> And as God is walking down the rows of stones looking uh, for his perfect cornerstone, he sees the stone that represents Jesus far off and he stops in his tracks. He can't believe what he's seeing. He's looking at this stone and he can't believe that such a perfect stone has been left, has been looked over by so many construction crews before him. And so he runs over, he stoops down, he runs his hands over the surfaces of this perfect stone. He can't believe it. He has found the perfect cornerstone. It is precious to him. It is perfect. It is straight. It is square. And so he decides right then and there that this is going to be the cornerstone to his house. And so God proceeds to buy this cornerstone and then to go through the rest of the quarry looking for the other stones that he's going to need to build his building. But here's the thing. That cornerstone is so precious, so perfect, so square, so level, so even, that it really doesn't matter all that much what the rest of the stones he chooses look like. Some of the stones that he chooses have chunks taken out of them. Other stones that he chooses are a little bit less than even, a little bit less than square. But at the end of the day, he's not all that concerned about that. He knows his building is going to be fine because every single stone is going to be aligned with the perfect cornerstone. Because the cornerstone is perfect, the house is going to be perfect. This is the picture that we have to see <clears throat> here in this passage. And this is the, Peter, the metaphor that Peter is using. And yes, it takes a little bit of imagination to understand what he's saying in this passage, but the picture he's painting is actually pretty simple and pretty beautiful. What we're seeing is that God takes many and makes them one. He takes many people and unites us as one church. Many stones and unites them as one house. And he doesn't just do that by bringing us all together into one place. Rather, he does that by bringing us together and aligning us perfectly with Jesus Christ. We are not just a people together thrown together into a room, but we are a community of people who are united by our mutual alignment with Jesus Christ. God chose us to be a part of his house, not because we are perfect and straight and solid, not because we were the perfect stones, the exact ones that we were, he was looking for. Rather, God chose us to be a part of his house because he knew that he could align us with the, perfect, the one who, sorry, for the, with the one who was perfect. If I've said this once, I feel like I've said it a thousand times, and it's exactly what Peter's saying here. It all comes down to Jesus. It all comes down to Jesus. 
A church is united, a church united around anything other than Jesus Christ is no church at all. A church that is only united around social justice is, is, a, is a rotary club. It's not a church. A church that's united just around the study of the Bible uh, rather than the God of the Bible is just a book club. It's, it's not a church. But a church that's united around Jesus Christ is the united people of God. The image of a stone house is the picture that Peter is using to describe the church. Many different people unified around Jesus Christ to make this beautiful community. But the thing is, it's not really Peter's idea. Yes, Peter is talking about it here, but he didn't think of it. And so from this point forward in the passage, Peter starts citing his sources. He starts quoting passages from the Old Testament that use this same language of a cornerstone and a building being built around it. Let me read this for you, starting in verse 6, 1 Peter chapter 6, all the way through to verse 8. Peter writes, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believed in him will not be put to shame. That's quoting Isaiah chapter 28. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's quoting Psalm chapter 118. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's Isaiah chapter 8. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You know, we see a lot of the same ideas here in these passages that Peter was just using a little bit before. Ideas like a cornerstone that's chosen and precious. But notice that uh, included here is not just the blessings that come from being united with the cornerstone. That's what we were focusing on before. But also in this section, in these passages, verses 6 through 8, we also see the judgment that comes upon the builders for rejecting Jesus. The judgment that will come upon the builders for looking at Jesus and deciding not to align themselves with him. Not to use him for their uh, as the cornerstone of their building project. And the picture here, it's, it's kind of strange, but the idea is that as they toss Jesus aside and they turn and walk away, they actually trip over him. That their rejection of this cornerstone is itself their downfall. And so if we said it a thousand times before, maybe this is the thousand and first time. It all comes down to Jesus. Blessings versus judgment. Life versus death. Standing versus falling. Honor versus shame. It all comes down to what you do with Jesus Christ. Whether you believe him or disbelieve him. Because if you disbelieve him, what it's saying here is that you will stumble. But if you believe him, it says that you will not be put to shame. If you reject him, you will fall. But if you align yourself with the chosen and precious cornerstone, you will be honored. That's the message here in big picture. And in fact, it's the honor that we share with Jesus Christ to which Peter now turns. 
In the last two verses here, verses 9 and 10, he turns to describe once again the honor that we share with Jesus Christ. So let me read these verses to you, verses 9 and 10. But you, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This passage is an amazing description of who we are in Jesus Christ. But you have to imagine, it would be even more amazing for a Jew. Because as we read these passages, Peter is so bold as to take the words that God uses in the Old Testament to describe Israel and to use those exact words to describe the church. And this is bold. Let me read for you uh, Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6. Because here God is speaking about Israel when he says this. He says, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter writes, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of my own possession. Peter is teaching us that by faith in Jesus Christ, the church is united as God's new covenant people. We are the people of God. And if we have any doubt about that, we just have to read verse 10. What it says is that once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is a radical passage because it challenges what the Jewish people believed for so long. We see this idea throughout the rest of the New Testament, but the idea is that the people of God are those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. That we have been grafted into the tree. Once we were not a people at all, once we were people from many different nations, many different tribes, many different languages. But because of our mutual faith in Jesus Christ, because we have all aligned ourselves with the cornerstone, Jesus, we are now one building. We are a people. We are God's people. The people who have received His mercy. Now let's imagine that I came into a whole lot of money unexpectedly. Maybe I had a, a relative that I didn't know very well who passed away and, and left me a, a part of their massive inheritance. Let's say I came into $500,000, half a million dollars. And so I decide with, with Olivia that I'm going to build a mansion on the seacoast. And so you hear about our plan to build a mansion on the seacoast and you come to me and say something like, oh, that's... That's great. Are you going to vacation there? I say, well, nah, pr probably not. And you say, oh, okay, well, are you planning to retire there? To which I reply, mm, no. And so you ask, okay, so this is an investment of some sort, just a place to, to store your money and hopefully see its value appreciate. To which I say, mm, not really. The question to be asking yourself right then is, 
well, why are you building it? Why are you putting all this money into this great, huge, beautiful mansion right on the seacoast if you're never going to visit? If you're not using it as an investment, if you're not using it as your plan for retirement? And that would be a really good question to ask. But it's actually the question that I think we need to ask of this passage. God is building an amazing, beautiful house out of stones that he has collected together by aligning with his son. God has built a united people for himself, the church, from all those who have aligned themselves with Jesus Christ by faith. And the question that we need to ask is why? What are you going to use it for? What is the purpose of this house? What is the purpose of this unified people? And actually, be free, we can find the answer to that question in one word used twice in this passage. We passed right over it before, twice. And we passed over it before because I wanted to spend a little bit more time on it here at the end. The word that we have to understand, if we're going to get why God chose us and built us into a beautiful house for himself is the word priest. Priest. Or the word, rather, priesthood. In verse 5, we read that you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. Why? To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 9 we read, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. Now back in ancient Israel, the priest had a job to do. The priest's job was to stand between a holy God and a sinful people. But in order to do that well, the first thing a priest had to do was to deal with his own sin. The first thing a priest had to do was to wipe away his own sin through sacrifice so that he, holy, then could stand between a holy God and, and uh, make sacrifices for a sinful people. And that's what we, saw, we see the priests in the Old Testament do. They offer animal sacrifices for the sake of the people, but their job is to stand in between as the mediator, in between the holy God and the sinful people, and to help wipe away their sins through sacrifice. And now what this passage is saying is that we, the church, are called to be a holy priesthood. And we have a job to do now. The job of the priests in the Old Testament is the same job that is ours now in the New Covenant. Only we don't have to first purify ourselves of sin because by faith in Jesus Christ we have already been made holy. Because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we already have the ability to stand between God and a, and, a, and a sinful world. We put ourselves here between a holy God and a sinful world in order to help them wipe away the sins of the world. Only we don't do that by offering sacrifices ourselves. Rather, we offer forgiveness by pointing people to the sacrifice that has already been made for them. Our job is to do the works of priests by mediating between a sinful world and a holy God by telling them the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me read verse 9 and 10 for you. 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions. Here it is. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into a marvelous, into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The message of this passage, Be Free, is this. By faith in Jesus Christ, God has built us into a united people for himself, the church, that we might call the world to receive his mercy. Let me read that again. By faith in Jesus Christ, God has called us, I'm sorry, has built us into a united people for himself, the church, that we might call the world to receive his mercy. Now we talk a lot about sharing our faith, right? This is something we actually talk about every week or two uh, as a part of the sermon. It's, it's something that's very important to us to be a community on mission, sharing the good news of Christ uh, with the people we love, proclaiming, as it says here, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And yes, it's true that we do this, all of us, individually on our own, that as we go to, to work or school or wherever we are, we seek to live in a way and to speak the words of the gospel, to live in a way that doesn't contradict what we say. <laughs> but here, the point of this passage is to show us this, that yes, as we go on mission, we don't go on mission alone. Rather, as we go on mission, as we live on mission, we go on mission together. As we go and make disciples, we make disciples together. And I have to say, to my own shame, I constantly forget about this. I constantly think about mission as something that I'm just meant to do, to go and build a relationship with my neighbor, to tell her about Jesus Christ. Or to go walk across the street and try to build a relationship over there so that I can lead that person to Christ. And all that's good. But I forget so often that this isn't a mission. This isn't a job that I have been called to on my own. Rather, with brothers and sisters beside me, we go. And let me give you an example of this. When Olivia and I lived in Massachusetts, we lived in an apartment uh, where none of the other people in the apartment building uh, were followers of Jesus Christ. And one of our neighbors, uh, her name was, was Carol, uh, she uh, was addicted to opi opioids. And I think I told you a little bit about Carol's story before. Um, but we invited Carol and her boyfriend to church and uh, her boyfriend started to come. And it was really exciting. A couple months later, Carol actually decided to start coming to church as well. And so for the next couple weeks, um, Olivia and I started getting together with Carol and her boyfriend, trying to explain to them a little bit more about Jesus and what it means to be a follower of him. However, over that time, two things happened. Number one, Carol's interest in Christ grew a little bit colder. And Carol and her boyfriend stopped wanting to get together with Olivia and I. But the other thing that happened during that time is that Carol uh, built relationships with some other ladies in the church. 
And so even while Carol pulled away from us, pulled away from wanting to continue being discipled by us, she did not pull away from these other ladies. And so as Olivia and I moved away, as we came up here to Alton, the relationship between Carol and these other ladies continued and continued to grow. And these other ladies would not let Carol pull away. They loved her too much. They pushed in. They kept walking with her until eventually, about a year and a half to two years later, Carol accepted Jesus as her Lord. But Carol kept struggling, kept growing. But at that point, God brought another woman into her life, a woman also from the church, whose name was Joy. Now, two people could not be more different than Carol and Joy. (laughs) But Carol committed to sitting down with Joy every single week just to read a little bit of the Bible together with her. And Joy and her husband David started sitting down with Carol and her boyfriend to talk with them and to disciple them and to counsel them and to lead them. And then a couple months later, Carol and her boyfriend decided to get married and the pastor, Stephen, started counseling them and walking with them until the day that they actually got married. And now they are a healthy couple, people walking together with Christ, seeking to live for the glory of God. And this is a picture of how we go on mission as a church. Olivia and I had our part to play and we could only do so much. But the other women of the church came around Carol and the other men of the church came around her boyfriend and they cared for them, loved them, and walked with them to the point of faith and beyond. Be free. We go on mission. But we do not go on mission alone. Some of us plant seeds. Some of us water. And Jesus Christ gives the growth. So as you live on mission... Do pray for your neighbors. Pray for your friends. Pray for people that do not know Jesus Christ. Tell them about Jesus Christ. Look for opportunities to grow deeper in relationship with them. But don't do it on your own. Remember, be free, that you are a part of a church family that is all on mission together. Invite your friends into community with the church. Be that home group or to attend a service or to watch an online service. Be free. We are sent to live on mission, but we are not sent to live on mission alone. Rather, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts the joy of being a part of the body of Christ, this family that is eternal, this family that has been united by our mutual delight and faith in you, Jesus. But I pray, Lord, that as we turn around and look out and long for the people that we love to come to know you, that we would recognize that the mission that we go on is not a mission we go on alone but rather we labor together for the salvation of our brothers, or of the salvation of our neighbors. We labor together to see the glory of the Lord cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so, Father, we, we ask that you would send us out. Help us encourage 
one another, pray for one another, and love the community around us as one family sent to shine your glory into our town and our region. And Father, we love you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.